Good morning, Church of the Cross. It, it is good to be with you this morning. I feel honored to kick off Advent with you and begin your sermon series entitled Letters to Those Who Wait. I believe this will be our only week in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And I will admit, I was at first a little underwhelmed at drawing this passage to preach on. Really? <laughs> the greeting? In the time of Paul, the greeting was, as it is in ours, a little bit formulaic. Who's writing? To whom? Greetings. Granted, he makes it his own, but I might have preferred good genealogy. Isn't this one of those texts that preachers tend to pick out one word and, and preach about that because the text itself is a little, a little ho-hum, a little perfunctory? I think of it a little bit like I do our contemporary email signatures, something I largely ignore. Not all of us, including me, have an email signature, but for some of us, they are necessary etiquette and professionally helpful. In the signatures I've encountered, there's often a name, a title, an organization, maybe some contact information. If somebody's really getting a little fancy, there are links, favorite quotes, headshots, logos. Other than the day you set your signature, it is generally a passive ending to your emails. But there is a time when the signatures become more significant. When there is tension in a relationship, the signature takes on a strange weight. Maybe you want your parents to take you more seriously. You are an adult, and you hope your signature communicates, see, mom and dad, I'm not a little kid anymore. I am the director of communications. Some respect for my perspective on life and the world, please. Or maybe you're in conflict with someone, and your status doesn't feel enough. You're the sales associate writing to the CEO. Or maybe it feels too much. The signature is suddenly loaded. Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church as he writes this letter is filled with tension. When you read the other 16 chapters, you see there's a lot going on that Paul needs to address. First, there's the Corinthian church itself. If Church of the Cross were the Corinthian church, let me recap what happened to you last Sunday in worship. You have received the gift of tongues, and you have been given gifts of special knowledge and wisdom. It's beautiful. It was chaotic, but you gathered ready to participate in Jesus' fullness right then and there. When it came time for the Eucharist, though, you got a little too full on Jesus, particularly the wine, and you all started shouting drunken insults at each other. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> the Corinthian church believed that they had in some sense transcended material existence. They thought the gifts they had in speaking in tongues of angels and their spiritual knowledge were evidence that they were above the physical world, including their own bodies. Because of that, yes, they got drunk, they visited temple prostitutes, and many other things that they assumed did not matter in their understanding of the gospel. 
Naturally, there is a conflict between the gospel Paul preaches and the ways the Corinthians are living as a people of God. In addition to the church itself, there's a second conflict, a personal conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. Paul was no longer impressive in their minds. A leader named Apollos had taken the mantle. Paul was the popular guy in high school, but the Corinthians have now been to college. What Paul lacked in charisma, Apollos had in spades. In the midst of their rise above the material world, they also saw themselves as rising above Paul. They'd moved beyond Paul's teaching and Paul himself, and they thought themselves better for it. This is not merely theological, it's personal. It's in this setting our greeting comes. Now imagine if you're Paul, and that's what you need to cover in a letter to a church that thinks you're basic. How would you start that letter? How would you handle that formal greeting? How do we hear Paul's words in light of the tension? Do we hear foot stamping? Do we hear defensive self-assertion when Paul says he's an apostle of Christ by the will of God? Do we hear Paul being snarky, a wee bit sarcastic when he writes that the Corinthians don't lack any gift? Do we hear the beginnings of a compliment sandwich? You know, that thing people do where they give you hard feedback sandwich between two compliments? Do we hear insincerity or flattery? Is he buttering them up so he can flatten them in chapter two? Before we throw a strong interpretive filter over this, let's look carefully at what Paul actually says so we don't jump to conclusions. That is also a good rule of thumb with your emails. Paul wrote here a powerful greeting that is actually not much about himself or even the Corinthian church, per se. His words center on Jesus. Did you hear that when the passage was read? In nine verses, the Christ is named nine times. There are more references to Jesus and God than to anyone else in his greeting. And what about Jesus does Paul proclaim here? Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Lord. And it's this Jesus from whom our peace and grace flow. It flowed to Paul as he called him to go out and give testimony about him. It flowed to the Corinthians who received this testimony even before it was confirmed by the spiritual gifts. Jesus who has made them rich. As they wait for Jesus, they lack no spiritual gift. As they wait for Jesus, he will make them firm for the day of judgment. He has called Paul and the Corinthians and all who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ into fellowship with him and to be his set-apart people. Jesus is the one calling, sanctifying, enriching, and keeping his people. How might we hear the greeting now? In the midst of theological and personal tension, 
Paul speaks of Jesus in a way that infuses the situation with something that can be so hard to find in a struggle. Hope. We hear hope. We hear a greeting that is grounded not in Paul's assertion of his credentials, nor in the failings of the Corinthian church. Paul doesn't neglect to mention who he is and who the letter is addressed to, and he doesn't sidestep laying the frame for how he will tackle this difficult conversation ahead, but his entry point to the tension is hope in the complete sufficiency of Christ Jesus. I was listening recently to the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley, one of our canon theologians for a diocese, as he taught about the American black church and hope. I'm indebted to his thinking and teaching on our podcast for shaping my thoughts today. In speaking of the arc of faith of our black brothers and sisters and their particular suffering, he says, our hope isn't rooted in the impending change of our circumstances in some set period. It is the sure confidence in what we know about God that will ultimately prove victorious. It is not that African Americans were always positive or hopeful emotionally. It was that we were always convinced that God had a future for us. Paul's hope wasn't a Pollyanna hope of nice but empty pleasantries. It also wasn't likely a letter that felt good to write. But it is full of hope. In Christ Jesus, God has a future for Paul. God has a future for the Corinthians. We can't tackle this difficult conversation from a place of insecurity and fear. No, we start here. God has a future for us. It's from this hope that Paul can give genuine thanks for the Corinthians partaking of this goodness, where he can note his apostleship without it being coercive, nor feel the need to edit it out. He can begin in earnest, though I'm sure not without practice, to enter into this from a posture of hope. Church of the Cross, the way we engage with each other and with our world today must come from, must be rooted in what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. We can't start with today, with this Advent season, and interpret the first and second Advents. That's backwards. The first Advent, the incarnation, and the second Advent, when Christ returns, have interpretive claims on today. And the good news is, when we look at today through the lens of Jesus' incarnation and Jesus' imminent return, we are empowered to move a secure people who lovingly enter the fray for the sake of others. I'd like to suggest we follow Paul's example in living into this hope. This Advent season, let us engage, let us cultivate thankfulness, and let us eagerly await. In a tense situation, Paul pressed in and engaged. He wrote the letter. He could have not. He prayed for the Corinthians and thought about what he would write. 
He let his heart, his mind, and his hands be touched by what he heard, even when it stung. What would it look like for you to engage this Advent season? For you to make that phone call to the family member you've been avoiding? For you to sit and talk with God about your anger and grief over what has felt taken from you in 2020? For you to not avoid your brother or sister who rubs you the wrong way? Engagement doesn't have to mean aggressively taking the reins. Often it's merely saying no to running the other way. It's a quick prayer to remain open and saying something rather than saying nothing. Where and with whom might God be inviting you to engage? Paul also cultivated thankfulness. I say cultivated because nobody says, I always thank my God for you without cultivating that. That is a nurtured thankfulness, not a perpetually spontaneous gratitude for people who at a minimum think you are simple. Cultivating thankfulness requires giving our attention to the presence of God's grace. It requires lingering and refusing to take the good for granted. In relational tension, it becomes surprisingly easy to resent God's grace to one another. Why are they so good at that when I know they're a jerk? Ugh, it'd be so much easier to talk to my colleagues about Jesus if that other guy wasn't doing it so clumsily over there. Resentment is a clue that we have shifted hope away from our anchoring advents, away from our assured future in Christ, and toward our own frustrated timelines. How might the Lord be inviting you to cultivate thankfulness this Advent season? Finally, we eagerly await Jesus' coming. Eagerly awaiting involves preparation, it involves attentiveness, keeping an eye out, it involves patience. Tis the season of many packages from Amazon or whatever stores you like to frequent. Tis sadly also the season of packages being swiped from porches. My family used to live in Mueller, and my next door neighbor and I had a standing agreement that we would take each other's packages inside as soon as we saw them. We both had had packages swiped, so we were determined to have each other's backs as often as possible. We anticipate these packages. We even prepare for them. We have tracking numbers. We have updates, arrival estimates. Some of us even have ring doorbells that alert us to movement on the porch. We await them with our neighbors. I don't know about you, but I feel challenged to give more attentiveness to Jesus' coming than I do to boxes on my porch. When a package comes, whatever it holds is temporary. Whatever it holds will not set our world right. It won't even set me right. But Jesus' coming, his judgment, his final victory will. What is something typical to the season that you anticipate? It could be packages, 
It could be Hallmark movies, no judgment. It could even be putting on jackets and sweaters, wearing peacoats while you preach. (laughs) What are those things you anticipate that can serve as a sign to you that we wait not for objects, not for fuzzy feelings, not for weather, but the living God? That each package you receive, each Christmas song, each cold front might remind you that Jesus has said, surely I am coming soon. As you wait together at Church of the Cross, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.